Thank you for downloading the Aging Matters podcast. To find out more about how Transitions Life Care is providing care and comfort for life's changing needs, visit transitionslifecare.org. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Good Saturday evening to you. I am Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett, representing Transitions Life Care and Transitions Guiding Lights. Nicole, how are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm making the best of things and um, definitely appreciate kind of getting my hands into work a little bit by talking to you today. Yeah, it's nice to get into the studio here. We're still practicing our social or physical distancing, which is going well. But uh, you, you sent me an email earlier in the week. Your garden is... Uh, it's going strong. You know, yeah, I was kind of, you're not really supposed to plant much in your garden until after April 15th, but the way the weather's been looking, and I just, I just couldn't take it. I was home and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've now planted, last night I actually planted my eggplant and my peppers and my tomatoes are looking at me longingly saying they want to get in the ground. So I think they're, they're, they're going in the ground before the 15th. I'm sorry. I, I may, I may talk next week and say, you know, I shouldn't have done it because everything's died, but I'm looking at the forecast, and I think we're going to be all right. We had a warm winter, so I, I think you're okay. I think you're in the clear. Well, let's get down to brass tacks here. We're going to be talking about the impact of the coronavirus on senior living facilities and various other aspects of that. And we've brought back a return guest joining us remotely. It's Dr. David Fisher. He's a physician with Doctors Making House Calls, and he has a background in family medicine, geriatrics, and palliative care. So he's a great person to talk to on this subject. Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Great to be here. Hi, Nicole. Hey, how are you? How, how, how's, how's everybody managing at home? I know you have several children, and is, <laughs> is everybody going crazy? Are they kind of over the whole idea of being out of school, or, or what's going on in your world? Yeah, kind of, but everybody's been real disciplined about uh, remote learning and figuring out how to do this thing. And they were homeschooled early on, so this isn't a new thing. Okay, them. okay, yeah. My, my kids have pretty well gotten into the routine as well, and they thought it was going to be awesome, and now they're wishing they could see their friends. So I think they're kind of, the honeymoon period is now over, and yet learning is continuing. So same, sort of same thing in my boat, and I'm just grateful that they all have each other. For better or worse, you know, love each other one day, hate each other the next, but at least, oh, they, yeah, have, at least, right. at least they have playmates, right? <laughs> you bet. So really appreciate you coming on today. I, you are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the care for older adults in our communities, and you really have a special emphasis on working with the senior living communities and assisted living communities here in our area. And we've heard a lot about how folks living in these communities are at higher risk uh, for the COVID-19 virus. And and, there, and Medicare has actually, as well as our governor and, and the, our president, has really put in some very strict guidelines on how we need to protect these folks from the virus coming into the walls of these buildings. That's right. They really are the most vulnerable population, it appears, from this coronavirus when you look at the people who are dying from it and who are getting very ill from it we're mostly looking at people you know over the age of 65 and people with other health conditions which is certainly uh, the population that i serve in the assisted living and skilled nursing facilities in the area and so 
some very strict restrictions have been placed on these facilities as uh, those of you who maybe have loved ones uh, in the area living know very much because you've not been able to go and see your loved ones. Um, yeah. At, and as recommended by, by Medicare, uh, almost all outside visitors have been restricted, only essential medical personnel and, of course, employees of the facilities who provide cleaning and food services uh, and AIDS services are allowed in. So and I think it, it's, it really has been a challenge. I think it's important for folks to realize while in the beginning, you know, these organizations were voluntarily putting some restrictions in, you know, a month and a half or so ago. Now it's really a mandate. And, you know, I run an online group for family caregivers and there's often an ongoing debate about how people think it's not fair and they want to see their loved one. You know, my mom's 95 years old or my grandma's 95 mm -hmm. years old and, you know, I may never see her again. And so there's definitely sort of this pull for people and, and just feeling like it's not fair. So if you could kind of help us understand why this is in place and really how it is protecting folks. Sure. So we know that this virus is highly contagious. It appears that uh, it can pass through respiratory droplets we're finding out now, even from not just coughing and sneezing, but even being close to someone and, and talking and breathing. And so uh, because of the highly contagious nature of this, um, we're really trying to keep people who might be infected away from the most vulnerable. And we're also finding out that it may be that people who have been infected and, and only have minor symptoms uh, could pass this on to someone else who's vulnerable. And so because of that, because we just don't have the testing and ability to know who might be at risk of passing this on to someone, we've just decided let's just not let anyone around who might infect someone. And these are mandates that are national now. And any skilled nursing or assisted living that's uh, participating with Medicare has to follow these guidelines. It's, it's not an option. And you're right. Originally, there were some good voluntary steps being taken, but it's now a mandate. And so if, if a facility wants to keep their license and wants to be able to continue to provide care for people, they have to abide by these guidelines. And so uh, I think it's working, though. I, I really think that these are wise steps that we're taking to protect our seniors. So what are some of the things, I mean, obviously, and, and you know, I'd had opportunity to talk to a, a physician for something else who's working actually right in uh, New York City. Um, what, are, what are some of the things that are being done to sort of monitor the staff that are coming in and out? Because these staff aren't staying there in the building. So they are, I mean, obviously we've limited the number of visitors because it's just staff sure. coming in and out. But what are we doing to make sure that the staff aren't bringing the virus in? So the facilities are testing every single person who, who comes in with a temperature. Everyone's temperature is being taken. Uh, you're having to, of course, anyone who has a fever is, is not allowed in the building. Also, uh, people are having to give a report, uh, a self-report on, do you have any symptoms? Uh, have you been exposed to anyone else who might have symptoms? Or have you been in any of these other areas of the country? Have you traveled recently? So there's typically a questionnaire that has to be completed before anyone is allowed in the building. Um, also, many facilities now, and this is not a mandate, but many are now having all staff members wear masks. And the masks I'm talking about are the either surgical or cloth masks 
that protect not necessarily you from being infected, but protect others from you coughing or, or passing right. on something. And I and think so that's, just, that's really important to talk about because I think there's a lot of confusion about that. I, you know, I'll see people driving down the road with their cloth mask on. And so people need right. to understand that it's keeping your germs to you, but it's not stopping you from receiving germs from somebody else. Yeah, that's right. I was in the store the other day wearing a, a surgical mask and someone said, boy, that's really smart to protect yourself. I said, no, actually, I'm protecting you <laughs> yeah. in case I had something. Uh, so, yeah, people don't always understand that. So the N95 masks, which are a lot harder to find, are the ones that can protect healthcare workers and others from being infected. I have one of those thanks to my uh, practice. I haven't had to wear it yet because I've not been around somebody that I've had to test or had suspicion that they had the COVID-19 virus. Um, but I've been wearing surgical masks really now out in public anywhere. I, I think that's a smart idea, but definitely in the facilities. And I'm now seeing really all of the facilities are requiring this of anybody who comes in from the outside. I think it's very smart. Great. And so um, it looks like, I mean, I, I, I don't want to jinx us, but it really looks like these requirements that are being put into place seem to be, at least in this area, really limiting the virus uh, in these buildings. Thankfully, we've learned from, you know, Seattle and then New York what happened there. And so the steps that were taken here really do uh, seem to be working in terms of any outbreaks in any local facilities. I mean, these could really be hotbeds and hotspots because of people being so close together. Another thing that uh, is really tough on the residents, but I think is smart, is people are asked to remain in their rooms. They're not congregating like they often do for meals and other activities. All the meals are being delivered to the rooms. Uh, I was talking with an executive director the other day about the shortage of styrofoam food containers. <laughs> and he, he had to spend $100,000 to order more oh my gosh. styrofoam food containers for his very large uh, facility. And uh, but so, you know, it's it's really hard socially on on the residents. They're used to getting together for meals and getting together to do activities, play bingo and other things. Right. And they're not able to do that right now. But again, I think it's very smart and it seems to be working. There have been some cases in the area, people who've tested positive uh, in a senior living facility, but that person has been isolated and or sent to the hospital if they needed to be. And so far, we have not seen a large outbreak in uh, a facility like we've seen in other parts of the country. Yeah, and that's great. And when we get back from the break, I definitely want to hit more on some of the social isolation implications of some of these policies. We'll do just that with Dr. David Fisher. He's a physician with Doctors Making House Calls, and we'll continue our conversation right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Cleggett from Transitions Guiding Lights. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on News Radio 680 WPTF. You can find more about Transitions Life Care at transitionslifecare.org. Transitions Life Care. 
Org. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cluggett. Our guest is Dr. David Fisher. He is joining us remotely. He is a physician with Doctors Making House Calls, and he has a background in family medicine, geriatrics, and palliative care. And we've been talking about how COVID-19 has impacted senior living facilities. And uh, we want to focus a little bit more, Nicole, on the, uh, the isolation part of that. And, you know, I, I've seen some heartbreaking pictures going around on social media of people who haven't been able to go in and visit their loved ones as much as they used to. Sometimes they're, you know, outside of a window or something, just trying to be there to comfort. Uh, It's, it's hard to see, but you know, it's, it's, it's for the right reasons. Well, you know, I mean, even in my own family, I'm, I'm facing some of that. You know, my, my kids don't get to see their dad as often right now because, you know, there's a family member who works for a primary care and, and you know, and she's constantly getting exposed. And so you have to make some of these tough decisions just, pr- just to protect the greater good. But, um, yeah, so... You know, we often talk about how dangerous social isolation is for older adults uh, with respect to, you know, becoming depressed and not eating as well and and even mimicking sometimes some cognitive deficits. And I think the one thing we have going for us in the senior living communities, while folks are being relatively isolated, it is communal. So at least, you know, the staff can kind of float around and still bring a smile to everyone's faces. but people living out in the community where, you know, they're just basically completely isolated to their homes, you know, for me, that's almost more of a worry because you know, they're afraid to leave their homes because of the virus and they may not even have local family members to visit or to even, you know, check in on them. Sure, that's very true. We know from a lot of research that social isolation is is very very bad for seniors medically, uh, emotionally, psychologically. Uh, we know that, for example, um, uh, people who are socially isolated are at higher risk for a lot of different diseases. Um, and we're talking about over the long term, but even cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease can be impacted by this. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. Somebody who's home and is completely isolated, uh, that's a, a very high risk situation. And of course, leaving the home and catching the virus is also high risk. So we're stuck between a rock and a hard place right now Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Uh, And so, you know, I think it's really important, the the work that you do and and the work that caregivers do to be very vigilant about checking on folks and, uh, you know, delivering things that they need, uh, figuring out ways to to stay in contact. And I'm seeing this both in homes and in, in the senior living facilities where you're right we do have more of a communal environment there and you the staff almost have become like family even before this crisis a lot of times staff are you know almost like family members when they really get to know some of the residents Uh, and that's one way that family members can stay in touch you know particularly people with dementia and cognitive impairment who can't communicate as well. They're not uh, understanding. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're not understanding at all. And, and, and that's that's challenging to the staff who have to, you know, keep someone in their room who's used to walking around and being involved socially. I mean, that's one of the great pleasures, e- even in cases of dementia, just being able to be in a room with other people and doing some activities, even if you're not completely following along. And now that's been taken away. And so, you know, really encourage the staff members who are dealing with this because it is a challenge. Uh, So, you know, if you have a family member there, do what you can to encourage the staff through this as well as your uh, your family member. And 
we're figuring out creative ways to stay in contact. Thankfully, uh, due to technology, you know, we're all learning more. If we didn't already know about Skype and Zoom and all these ways to <laughs> communicate with people, um, there are ways to do that, uh, of course, at home, but also in senior living facilities now. You know, assisted living, skilled nursing are not required to provide uh, their residents with the technology to be able to do that. So if you, you know, have the ability to get uh, some type of device uh, to your family member, uh, an iPad or, or, or something that would allow you to communicate face to face uh, over over the Internet, um, I certainly recommend doing that um, in cases of nurses who are visiting. So, for example, uh, hospice nurses who visit residents are allowed into these facilities. In most cases, I have heard times where they're they're considered, quote unquote, non-essential. But we do know from the mandate that end of life care is one of the reasons why uh, caregivers need to be not caregivers, but professionals mm -hmm. need to be allowed in um, that if you have a good relationship with with that nurse they can they're actually allowed to use their own device mm -hmm. uh if if you call the nurse directly and do over facetime that that person can help facilitate a, a com direct communication with your loved one um and then of course you mentioned people standing outside windows and talking over the phone and they are kind of heartbreaking but that's better than nothing you know right. compared to not not seeing your resident or your, your family member at all um, we know that familiarity and routine are really important, especially for people with dementia. And so any sort of contact uh, is going to be worthwhile. Yeah, I saw uh, a post on social media of an area, a senior living community, where there was sort of this giant courtyard. And so the executive director was standing there with a megaphone, and she was just leading a sing-along. And all the residents were sort of standing on their balconies and, you know, participating. And, while, and so they actually all got to kind of see each other. And it, just people are getting yeah. creative. I've seen those big giant dinosaur costumes and people kind of run around outside the buildings just to make people laugh. And so, you know, there's definitely ways that we can still bring a smile to people's faces right now it's just we have to be creative and and look at it a little differently and frankly you know this this sh sort of shut down short term um if, if we do it well then hopefully we're not going to be looking at this you know six or eight months down the road and we can just handle the sort of the the pain and the struggle right now hopefully we can release some of these things sooner than later yeah i would encourage people this is you know, a short-term pain for a long-term gain here. And so if we can just get through these next few weeks, I really think we are, you, you are going to get back in to see your loved one and your loved ones are going to be able to get, come back in and see you uh, sooner than later if we really stick with this. And yeah, I've seen some really creative things too. Uh, one facility here, I think uh, they might've been on a social media post, but they had a courtyard like that. They do a flag raising every day and mm -hmm. people come out on the balcony and sing the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, that's and, sweet. But yeah, know, it, and some of these things may continue afterwards, right? I mean, I think... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think we're, we're kind of learning different ways to connect with each other that may just become traditions. And one of the things I wanted to bring up with you uh, is that an, another thing I've been hearing about, and I actually do think there there is some of this going on, I've even seen it within my online group of family caregivers, is that people are hesitant to get care now 
to go to their doctor, to go to mm-hmm. the hospital, or to go to urgent care. And so they're kind of letting a flare of a chronic condition just sort of fester uh, because they're just worried about contracting the virus. And so talk to us a little bit about the implications of that and kind of how folks can still receive care um, and, and hopefully sure. not get exposed. I know a lot of primary cares are even not allowing people to come in that have symptoms like the COVID-19 symptoms and instead sending them to different places to help mitigate that. And I, there's not really a lot of publicity about what's going on to help protect people. Sure. And I do have that concern as well, uh, particularly in our older adults, because they have chronic conditions like heart failure and COPD and diabetes. And maybe under normal circumstances, they would be getting into their doctor right away because they were concerned about something. And now they're they're waiting. And that that delay uh, could really bring harm. And so uh, stay in touch with your doctor, even though a lot of offices are closed. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, I, I highly encourage if you have concerns to, to call your doctor that you'll still be able to reach out to your primary care physician. Uh, we are still making house calls. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, doctors making house calls, still providing uh, that in-home service. Um, and, uh, There are now some relaxed rules as far as telemedicine. Mm -hmm. So it's never been easy for doctors to get reimbursed for telemedicine. That's an evolving situation. But because of this, uh, insurance companies and Medicare have relaxed some of those rules so that we can make uh, telemedicine visits. And it doesn't even have to be over uh, uh, video. Even phone calls and audio uh, can be considered a quote-unquote telemedicine visit right now. So doctors are able to at least connect with you that way. So I highly encourage if somebody has a health concern that's not related to the coronavirus to still contact your doctor and be in touch. Yeah, it's cool to see that you know behind the scenes that's moving forward, but also that people are becoming more and more uh, open to receiving that type of care and interacting uh, I guess, you know, not in person, whether it be via video or telephone, that's uh, something that I think would in- help people uh, get better care and uh, have better contact with their physicians. Dr. David Fisher, physician with Doctors Making House Calls. You can find more information at doctorsmakinghousecalls.com, doctorsmakinghousecalls.com. Dr. Fisher, thank you so much again for joining us this evening. It's been a real pleasure, and we will get through this. Yes, we will. We absolutely will. A quick break and back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. With your hosts, Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. News Radio 680 WPTF, this is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care, and I'm Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. And Nicole, we were talking a little bit about social isolation earlier, and we're going to look at that through a little bit a, a different lens here, and we're going to be talking about elder orphans. And to do that, we've brought on Nancy Ruffner. She is a board-certified patient advocate and owner of Navigate NC. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Good to be here. 
So, so glad to have you here today, and I think your topic is particularly timely because people who have uh, found themselves in a new position of being isolated um, that may not have ever found themselves in, in that way before, just by the fact that families, you know, can't come to visit them because they're an at-risk population, uh, things of that nature. So talk to us a little bit about um, specifically, generally speaking, before the COVID-19 pandemic, what exactly is an elder orphan? Sure. Well, an elder orphan is, uh, the, the functional definition is uh, elder orphans or solos are individuals who, by choice or circumstance, function without the support system traditionally provided by family. So that makes us think that it's um, people who live alone, people uh, who have no spouse or partner, people who um, don't have living children or stepchildren, and um, people whose only child may be disabled and, and is unable to provide the support that they need. Or people who just have cut ties for one reason or another, I'm sure, as well. Yeah. Fit into that group. That's part of the, the broader definition. There's a lot more um, in, inside that definition, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm glad you brought that up. People that are estranged from their family, uh, maybe, they're, maybe they do have children or family members, but they live at a distance. Right. Um, also, underneath this broad definition, um, they may have children or family members who are unavailable, and, and by that it may mean that perhaps they're working to pay for the care or, or uh, for their own retirement, or maybe they're in the sandwich generation and, and they're caring for young children and their aging parents. Um, but I, it could be that they're um, unable. Maybe maybe your support system, if you're an elder orphan or a solo ager, maybe your support system has their own medical challenges and maybe can't help or lift or drive. Um, your, your, your very best friend may be having their own hip surgery. <laughs> right, right. Um, so folks, folks can fall into that category, even temporarily potentially, but yeah, I, I certainly yeah. understand that. So, you know, so one are, what are some of the special considerations, you know, let's just say you find yourself as you know, that type of a person and, you know, you're not really at the point where you're needing a whole bunch of care yet or you haven't had a medical crisis of any stretch of the imagination. What are some of the things that, you know, if we're, if we're looking at our, our future and we're knowing that we're going to be aging basically alone, what are some things that we need to be putting into the place now so that we have um, – you know, a good future? Well, we, as most of us will assume that we want, as we age, we want to maintain our independence and control and um, elder orphans and solo agers are are no different. Uh, We have unique needs because our support system is different from others. In fact, we have to be a little bit more demonstrative in in growing it. We have to take the, take the reins. some of the things we can do is build out our support system or social capital, as some people call it. Capital meaning money in the bank. We need, we need to build our support system, meet people our, our own age, get involved so that we can combat some of the isolation, which was already a problem before COVID-19, but now presents some even more um, difficult challenges. Yeah, we've had a number of people reach out to Transitions Guiding Lights that uh, mm-hmm. really have nobody that they can 
truly rely on. So, you know, we have, you know, made certain connections for folks. Sometimes, you know, people like yourself or, or aging life care managers that can sort of step in right now and help coordinate services when people may be fearful to leave their home because they are a vul- part of the vulnerable population. So sort of all of these, I think, all of these situations, while no, none of us planned for a global pandemic, sort of need to be in our what I like to call our hit by the bus plan, right? Like at the the end of the day, you know, what are we going to do if, you know, basically the world catches on fire? There was a mem that I saw the other day. If 2020 um, was, was, if we could put 2020 as a mem and it was basically a kid sliding down a really hot metal slide, right? Like we're going, oh boy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just because it's sort of one of those crazy years. And really for any one of us personally, I know globally we're all going through this together, but personally, we can have a, a hot slide year where all of a sudden everything just seems like it's moving fast and it's not comfortable and we're out of control and, you know, what do we do? So, you know, if we have a plan in place for those moments, we could really be ready for anything. Well, I've seen a lot of good things happening, especially in this area. And, yes, we, we've seen an uptick in, in folks, uh, families that are concerned about their um, relatives who reside alone, aging alone, or, or again, the relatives are out of state, but the, the, the person is here. Good things are happening. Um, I've seen, uh, I, I've seen a lot of uh, Zoom calls. I've seen uh, an increase in folks wishing to connect um, teenagers who are tech savvy to seniors who may not be. Um, a, a lot more of the faith communities are stepping up and, and increasing their outreach. Uh, there's, there, are, there are really good things happening. Um, I'm especially excited to do the call uh, to do this, this show at this time because what's occurring right now in the month of April, National Healthcare Decisions Day, is a big day for, uh, for solo seniors. National Healthcare Decisions Day is the day that helps us uh, uh, to get our advanced directives going, our, get our legal ducks in a row. And elder orphans have some special planning here. We need to make sure that we have a will because, you know, I like to say if, if we don't have a plan, then the great state of North Carolina has one for us. Uh, but it's, it's mostly about advanced directives and who will speak for me. Right. Right. You know, that, that's a ripple in the rug for many, many elder orphans. They're like, I don't have anybody to designate. I don't know who I would choose to be my agent for health care power of attorney or financial power of attorney. And so their task becomes the one that's going to behoove them anyway, and that's increasing their social network. Exactly, exactly. So what are some other things that folks need to consider if they're an elder orphan? Along with combating the isolation, which again was already a problem before COVID, I think it's important that folks realize that they're going to need a team. And mm-hmm. it's kind of, when I think about it, it's an opportunity. You know, there, there's this famous phrase that says more than one in five Americans older than 65 are at risk of becoming an elder orphan. Yeah, I don't think it's at risk. I think it's an opportunity. You know, we're only at risk if we know there's a need and we haven't done anything about it. If we know our back door is open and we're not taking steps, then maybe we are at risk. But this is a tremendous opportunity for us to build our own team and to uh, to coin one of my favorite phrases, to, to have a say in how things will go and where we'll end up. 
we can begin to look at, you know, how are we going to call the shots? How can I maintain independence uh, and uh, make sure that things go my way? And I can do that by having my medical providers picked out. I can get my legal ducks in a row and, and find out what I need to know to appoint agents for my power of attorney designations and to have some emergency plans. Everything from the simple to the uh, more intricate, from something as simple as having the emergency contact information jotted down by your phone to something to having a complete information in a vault um, stored in the cloud. So there's a number of ways that you can approach this, um, build your team and ready yourself. Yeah, it's a planning exercise that we all should go through. She is Nancy Ruffner. She's a board-certified patient advocate and owner of Navigate NC. You can find more information about her and her organization at NavigateNC.com. NavigateNC.com. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Happy to be here. We will be back with more. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. And Nicole, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about advanced directives. And to do that, we've brought on a returning guest here on the program joining us uh, on the phone. It is Chris Wilms. He's an attorney with Hopler, Wilms, and Hannah. Chris, welcome back on the show. Well, thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm always happy to contribute uh, relevant information. Definitely happy to have you here today. And, you know, I think it's rather timely to have you on air. There has been a lot of conversations about this COVID-19 pandemic, also known as coronavirus, whereby people are, um, you know, hospital systems, you keep hearing about the need for ventilators and respirators and and we don't have enough in this country and, and things of that nature. And sort of what I've been hearing on the healthcare side is sort of this overarching conversation about ventilators um, across media has created an opportunity for a lot of a lot more intimate conversations within families if they had to be faced with being put on a ventilator for the COVID-19 virus if it got to that would or would they not want to receive that type of care so I mean in some ways you know you can kind of look at the blessing and the curse with everything and you know maybe that for whatever reason, having this sort of national conversation is trickling down into the homes where these conversations really need to happen on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and um, I can tell you that since this has gotten so much attention in the media, um, I have gotten a lot of calls. Um, We've definitely seen a substantial number of people reaching out for state planning um, and specifically discussing healthcare proxies and advanced directives. this, I think just the, the constant attention that this crisis has created has created a, an opportunity, I agree with you, um, and where people are naturally talking about the process of death and, and what they would want and not want. So it's a great opportunity to bring up the topic of advanced directives. 
Yeah, so when we're thinking about advanced directives, um, so these are basically plans that people put into place in the event that they were no longer able to make the decisions for themselves. So basically, you know, you and I right now, we could say what we want or don't want if we walked into a hospital. But in the event where we became very, very ill and we were no longer able to do so, advanced directives basically, from my understanding, take over and then the people that you appoint are able to make decisions decisions on your behalf as if they were you um, related to health care and finances, correct? Well, to some degree, yes. Yeah. So an advanced directive, well, think about ideally if you are become critically ill with something, you know, the doctor is going to walk in the room, talk to you about it, um, talk to you about your prognosis and your options. And after being fully informed, um, you'll, you know, you and the doctor will make a decision together about about life prolonging measures. And in response to that, the doctor may enter an order, um, a do not resuscitate order, or a, a most order, medical orders for scope of treatment, something that directs whether or not life prolonging measures are going to be withheld. But oftentimes, you can't make that decision. You can't have that conversation with the doctor. And so, an advanced directive um, for natural death essentially is you having that conversation in advance by having a series of situations that you describe in a document and explaining what you would and would not want in response to those various situations. So if you can't have a conversation at that time when you find when you you know it's determined that you are you know terminally ill, the doctor can review that document and know what your wishes are. It's sort of like having the conversation in advance. Very very helpful. I mean, I know that um, during a crisis, you know, it, any type of crisis, you have a heart attack, you have a stroke, you get into a car accident, you know, there's so much emotion going around, the shock of the family having to deal with this. Um, and then, you know, if, if people don't know what you would have wanted, that just creates even more stress with everybody offering their opinions about what they think you might have wanted. Absolutely. And what I have found is that people's perspectives on the process of dying are so different. I mean, I mean, very, to opposite extremes. Um, I'm, my office is located near Research Triangle Park, so I get a lot of young professionals, young couples that just had a baby or just bought a house or just got married or just moved to North Carolina. And they come in, and a lot of them have never been through or experienced the process of dying or having a loved one go through that process. And their perspectives, often I've noticed there's a pattern. Um, their perspectives on the process of dying are often informed by the exceptions rather than the rules. So they, they hear, they see a headline of right. someone waking up from a coma after a year or Or what happened on, on Grey's Anatomy. Channel. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so they, they, they think that the miracles are the things that they should be looking for during this process. Um, and, and so they, they have a very different perspective than someone who's been through this, had loved ones pass away, or is a medical provider and kind of understands how this process works. You know, those those two people have very, we have very different conversations in my office about this process. And a lot of times, I'm trying to explain to them, as someone who brushes up against death for a living, like you, you really need to think about kind of what this the toll that this takes on your family, the expense associated with it, um, the other sort of factors that go into whether or not you would want life prolonging measures withheld under these circumstances where you're allowed to do that. 
And what is it actually going to look like, right? And and so I, I would imagine as an attorney that gets to be kind of tricky territory. You know, what can you expect if you were on a ventilator? What can you expect if you were getting intravenous fluid and food? You know, what could you expect, you know, name it, if you continue to receive all kinds of experimental drugs for cancer treatment? And so I would, I would, I would, I would wonder if, you know, there's at times where you just may recommend that folks kind of talk to a medical professional to get a better understanding. So, yes, I'm, I'm only able to help to some degree based right. on the experience that I have. But someone like, um, like a patient advocate is going to be much more familiar with how the process plays out in various settings in the, in the medical industry. And they're going to be better able, I think, to advocate for certain types of um, care and treatment and be able to understand sort of the nuances of how this practically plays out in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, I, I could write a, a living will that you know, specifies that nothing happened. I mean, in terms of life-flowing measures that basically we switch you to comfort care, we keep you comfortable until you pass away, and we maintain your dignity and keep you clean, but we don't do anything to try to cure whatever's happening to you. And I could try to write that as solidly as I can, but there's a lot of wiggle room in this statute Mm -hmm. that provide a lot of discretion for hospitals and doctors to go against that. And you know, they, but they can't interfere with your efforts to try to get substitute attorney or substitute uh, physicians or substitute hospitals to try to uh, find a place in a position that will honor your wishes. And you know, I think someone that's a patient advocate is going to know that in the moment and is going to be able to um, navigate a person towards towards a solution or, or advocate on behalf of the family to get to a solution a lot faster and a lot more efficiently than an attorney would. Um, I can write the documents, but if you call me in a crisis, I might not be able to intervene quickly enough. But if you have a patient advocate there um, or someone that is versed like a medical professional in, um, in, in this process and the nuances of our current laws, they're going to be better able to do that, I think, very quickly. So if you could just talk for a moment or, or two about the importance of being careful about who you select to make these decisions. It may not be the person that everyone would automatically uh, uh, select to do it. Like it may not necessarily be your spouse, for example. Right. Um, healthcare proxies and advanced directives for natural death, they sort of go hand in hand, right? So a healthcare proxy is you know, where you name a person to make medical decisions. And an advanced directive for natural death is basically you expressing your wishes about what you'd want upon certain events happening. And a lot of people, for example, may want to name their adult children as, as an agent to, to make these decisions. And it may give them discretionary authority to withhold life prolonging measures too. Um, but, you know, if you have a 20-year-old son, you know, that you're naming to make these decisions, I think it's very important to make to have the conversation with them and make sure that they sort of understand and have an understanding of your worldview on the subject so that they can decide, make decisions about life prolonging measures as if they were you and not as if they were a 20 year old with a 20 year old's perspective. Not to say that 20 year olds don't understand how this works. Of course they do, but they just, a lot of times if, if this is your first time going through it, you're, and you have very little support from people who have an understanding of this process, um, you may make decisions that are not in the person's interest and may make decisions that um, are against their wishes. So I think it's more important, rather than picking someone that's close, um, you know, in degrees of kinship, like a spouse or a child, I think it's more important to name people that have an understanding of what your wishes are and can understand the why behind it. And not the just strength the to carry it out. You're right, exactly. At the moment when it's a, when you're when you're in that moment, you need somebody who's not going to 
hold back. Yeah, and you should also have a conversation with all the parties involved. Uh, explain your thought process behind that, so that no one is surprised at a no at secrets. A, yeah, at an inappropriate time. Chris Wilms, attorney with Hopler Wilms and Hannah. If folks want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, we are open, open during this crisis, um, but we're all ro- working remotely. So, phone nine one nine two four four two zero one nine is going to be a good way to reach us. Or also, you can reach out to us on the web, which is www.hopplerwilms.com. Hopplerwilms.com. Chris, thanks again for joining us. We always appreciate you having on the program. It's always a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. We are out of time for tonight. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us. We will be back again next week. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Have a wonderful night. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.